I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In Lent, we start our worship together with confession. So in that spirit, I'll start with a confession, which is, I'm still learning to love preaching. It's, it's the nerves for me mostly, but also scripture itself. It is an inexhaustible well, this plethora of riches. How to choose one, just one reading to focus on, just one argument to make, or just one avenue to explore when each reading for the day offers so much richness, so much to talk about, so much that could renew our hope and our inspiration to follow Jesus. And of course, there are mornings like this morning when the scriptures appointed for the day feel full of exactly what I do not like to talk about. <laughs> Within the beauty of the burning bush is the foreshadowing of so much suffering for the Israelites and those Canaanites and Jebusites and Perizzites. And then we have Paul, seemingly railing about the fates that have befallen various groups of sinners en masse, 23,000 people dying in a single day. And Paul saying that God will test us. And Jesus acknowledging the randomness of violence and tragedy and this poor tree that ought to just be cut down Unless we forget this morning, we hear that we, beneficiaries of God's tests, a la Paul, we are at risk of random tragedy and pain, and therefore we must repent. This is the tough stuff. This is the part of our faith that I suspect so many of us struggle with the most. This is where the doubts creep in when you can't sleep at 3 a.m., this is what C.S. Lewis memorably called the problem of pain. Why is there suffering and despair? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to innocent people? Why, why, why? The virgin birth, a few loaves and fishes feeding thousands of people and water transformed into wine, a man thought dead walking out of his tomb. I think most folks wouldn't even blink at that if the specter of suffering and sin in God's creation made more sense. Because underneath our why is something else still. The question, does God really care? Does God really care what's happening to us in the world? So these are not the, the parts of the Bible that make me want to jump out of bed in the morning. I'll just own that. And, it's not unlike how the ring of a news alert on my phone now has the opposite of a Pavlovian effect. I do not want to check the news and know what's going on. In that, at least this passage from Luke's gospel gives us something to relate to because in it, people are reacting to the terrible news of the day. A vicious would-be autocrat obsessed with his own power has murdered innocent civilians. That is to say, Pontius Pilate has killed a group of Galilean Jews while they worshiped in the temple, mixing their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. People seem to be asking Jesus for his reaction. Jesus is, after all, a Galilean. Some commentaries point out that he may even know some of the victims. This is his hometown church. And as a holy man, as a prophet of God, Jesus 
may have some thoughts on this whole affair. It was the common understanding of the day that suffering is connected to sin. So what sin might warrant this kind of suffering? What sin might lead you to being murdered in the temple? And if not a religious explanation, perhaps Jesus might have some spicy political opinion. I mean, just last Sunday, we heard Jesus call Herod a fox. Go tell that fox for me. And indeed, Jesus does heighten the stakes as he so often does. Jesus knows that the Jews of Jerusalem have some prejudice against the Jews from Galilee. Consider them a bit backwards, less spiritually rigorous, less pure. If his questioners want to know why these Galilean Jews were victims of such random violence, then why too did this other group of people die so pointlessly? Why did these Jews from Jerusalem get crushed by a falling tower? Why? You may be noticing that the people don't technically ask why, but Jesus knows that that's what they mean. In the words of theologian Debbie Thomas, they don't appro approach Jesus with a blank slate. They come expecting Jesus to verify their deeply held belief that people suffer because they're sinful, that folks get what they deserve, that bad things happen to bad people. Jesus won't play that game with them. Instead of validating their assumptions about suffering and sin, Jesus tells them to repent, literally to change their minds. Metanoia, to change their minds. And in doing so, to change their lives. Instead of letting this one group, these Galileans, be set apart and othered, Jesus links the community's shared experiences of suffering and their shared faith and their shared identity as God's children. Because that is the point, to be raised up as a disciple, to be the fig tree that bears fruit, to be rooted and grounded in God and bear fruits worthy of repentance. As Jesus' words are rendered elsewhere in Luke and Matthew, we are meant to bear fruits worthy of our transformation in Christ. We are meant to bear fruits worthy of being disciples. But then Jesus says, repent or perish just as they did. Surely that means some causal relationship, some one-to-one -one between death and sin. But we know already all people, all of us, will die. What makes these tragedies unique is their suddenness that these people were went, wrenched away before their time without the opportunity to say goodbye. As we prayed in our own great litany a few weeks back, deliver us, O Lord, from dying suddenly and unprepared. Could you please let the fig tree continue to grow, give it another chance to be tended with care? Because if it was just a matter of failure, a matter of sin, the owner of the vineyard would simply cut the tree down. But we are given the opportunity and the grace to change. And most of all, we are given the loving care of the gardener, Jesus himself. If in a year there is still no fruit, then cut it down. No surprise, no lack of preparation there, but a reminder that our time will come. So these Galileans murdered by Pilate, these Jews in Jerusalem crushed under the Tower of Siloam, they are the victims of surprising and unforeseen disaster.
These tragedies are not God's will, God's plan, nor is it God's vision for creation. But as Jeremy L. Williams writes, Jesus uses these unpredictable, unchangeable incidents to prompt his audience to change what they can change, their minds. And Jesus, the gardener in his own turn, gives us his life that we might see and know, that we might truly know what it means for the whole world to be offered the fruit of the Spirit in God's self-offering love. All this is complicated by Paul, of course. Usually is. Wonderfully, Paul takes care to root our Christian story in our Jewish one, to link the manna and the water and the rock with Moses and Jesus. Yet that also means that just as we are baptized into God's saving acts, we are baptized into the lineage of those troublesome Israelites in the wilderness with their golden calf and sexual misbehavior and epic complaining. Our lives are connected with our own epic past, mythic stories of where we come from. Our lineage of sinners is connected also with their mythic epic consequences, with tens of thousands of people dropping dead at once. But Paul knows that we are not constantly surrounded by people dying because they're doing something wrong, a truth best evidenced by the fact that we're all here this morning. We don't live in a world where people just drop dead when they make a bad choice. I read something that compared this passage to the other ways that we use fear as a teaching tool, like the way a pack of cigarettes comes with a warning about lung cancer, strokes, and death, or certain things are choking hazards some bad behaviors just bring bad endings. To be afraid reminds us that we can run terrible risks. But then we get to this word, test. That no testing has overtaken us that is not common to everyone. That God does not test us beyond our strength. As though, again, God means for us to hurt so much. But that word, test, Parasthenai, it's really best translated as tempt. It's the same word used to describe Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, his temptations by the devil. And that to me feels really important. Christ shares the experience of temptation with us. And his triumph over temptation is meant to show us that, oh, it's not meant to show us that it's actually so easy to say no, but that it is not so easy to say no. And that's why we need Jesus in the first place. Christ's temptation is meant to show us not that our resistance is easy, but that it is so very, very hard. To fully share in our own pain and brokenness, Jesus Christ needed to share in our temptations too. In Jesus, we have God's solidarity with our lives, the reality of suffering, as well as the example of what could be our joy, to be people who bear fruit, whose minds and hearts grow in the knowledge and love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. There is no risk or pain that God himself has not also run so that we too might be heirs of his eternal kingdom. I started this morning with how hard all this scripture is, how difficult 
It is to wrestle with the questions of sin and suffering. We look at our hurting world and we ask God to fix it or to enable us to fix it. And we miss that deep core of power in the middle that we are able to ask for anything at all. That God truly does love us, loves the world that God has made, and that God is active and present in a way that we simply cannot and do not fully grasp. As we sang in a hymn just the other week, it is beyond all knowledge and all thought. It is a mystery of faith. At our 910 Eucharist this morning, there was a moment when we proclaimed together the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Taken another way, the mystery of faith is that God's answer to our sin and death is life. And in fact, there is no unearned, unfair suffering that God will not redeem. And just how that will work and look and be and feel and in what time, we do not know. What happened behind the stone of the, stone of the tomb is a mystery. But what we do know, we know the power of love and life poured out for us and how the example of Christ's sacrificial love changes our hearts and our lives. We know the fruits that we have seen grow even in the valley of the shadow of death. And we strive to have faith that even in a world where so much feels out of our control, we can always change our minds and turn our hearts towards the sun. Amen.